Father, we just again just come to you and what a great privilege it is to study your word and, and uh, to dig deeply into these great truths that you have for us here in the book of Hebrews, Lord, especially this truth, this finality of the cross, Lord, this truth that we can trust in, in the blood of Jesus Christ for everything we need in our Christian faith, Lord. We're so guilty of trying to add to what you've already done for us. We're so guilty of trying to perfect ourselves, Lord, instead of trusting you for our perfection, trusting you for our sanctification. So, Lord, I ask today that through this study that you just teach us those things, Lord, just, just how important it is to rely totally on your blood, totally on the life that's in your blood for our sanctification, Lord, and, and for our glorification and for our salvation. And so, Lord, it seems pretty simple, but it's, it's more complicated than it seems sometimes. So I just ask today that by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, that you just, just teach us these truths that you would have us to learn. And we just ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me begin by saying to the fathers, happy Father's Day. Y'all want to clap for the fathers? <laughs> I mean, we gave the mothers flowers. At least we can clap for the fathers. So. I, if you've been, most of you have been here long enough to know that, that uh, I don't preach based upon a liturgical calendar, and I don't preach special sermons on special Sundays. I don't do topical sermons. We go verse by verse through the Bible, so I don't preach Father's Day sermons, but you know, you can find a Father's Day sermon just about anywhere in the Bible. I, I was going to a church uh, several years ago uh, when I first went to seminary, and that pastor did teach uh, topically, and he did teach on special occasions. He did teach uh, a topical sermon on, to meet that occasion, and uh, it just so happened on Father's Day that he preached a, a really good Father's Day sermon and, and was encouraging all the fathers to be better fathers. And, and, and I remember at the end of the sermon, uh, he gave a, an invitation. He gave an altar call. And what he said, he said at the end of the sermon, what I, want, I want all the fathers who will commit this year to becoming better fathers, I want all of those fathers, or being good fathers, I want all those fathers to come forward and meet me here at the altar, and we're going we're gonna to pray that, that, uh, that we, will become, we, we will commit to become good fathers. Well, as the invitational song began to play, most of the fathers came up one by one. I mean, all the fathers came up except one. One father. That was me. That was me. And I remember as the invitation was playing, and they were at the last hymn, and this guy was, you know, looking at me, waiting for me to come forward. And my kids were looking at me like, Dad, you don't want to be a good father? And Brenda was pinching me on the leg, go forward. Everybody's looking at you. But I refused to go forward. And then so at the end of the service, I had to explain to my kids why I didn't go forward. And what I told them was this. And I said that you don't become a good father by committing to become a good father. You become a good father by what Jesus does in your heart when you get saved. That's what makes a good father. That's what makes a good mother. That, that's what my, I, I know I was being a little bit rebellious, and it probably wouldn't have hurt anything for me to go forward, but, <laughs> but, but I am a, most of you know I'm a rebel at heart. Uh, we, don't, we don't become better people by making commitments to become better people. 
See, when we, when we start relying on our commitment, what are we doing? We're going back to the law. And what we're saying is in our own strength, I'm going to commit to become a better father. I'm going to commit to become a better mother instead of just saying, you know, Lord, change me. That's how we become better at better people in any walk of the Christian life by relying on the grace of God. Christ in me, my hope of glory. Christ in me, my hope of being a better father. I'm a better father because Christ changed me when he saved me. That's what makes me a better father. And so we got to be real careful. I mean, I don't think there was anything wrong with that altar call. And maybe I was shouldn't have tried to make my statement. But, but uh, there is, it's a really subtle danger that we get into when we begin to build these what I call rebuilding altars are going back to the sacrificial system. And really what we're doing when we do that, we're going back to the old covenant. And, and, I, I, and Paul says it like this, and he says it pretty bluntly in Galatians chapter 2. He says, he says, whenever we go back to law, whenever we go back to trying to do things in our own strength, that's what the law is. Whenever we go back to law, we nullify the work of Jesus Christ. So you see how dangerous this can become? I mean, if you're relying on your commitment to become a better father, guys, you're not going to become a better father. I mean, you might become better than the average guy on the street, but you're not going to become the Christian father you want to be until you commit to who? Not to yourself and not to yourself becoming better, but when you commit to Jesus Christ. And so uh, that's what we're going to learn today. We're going to learn today that, that Christ has put away the old covenant and he's replaced it with a new covenant. There's, you, you don't mingle the two together. He's totally replaced the old covenant with a new covenant. And that's what he's going to teach us beginning in verse number 1 of chapter number 10. So, so follow me there for a minute. All right, going to chapter 10 of Hebrews, verse number 1. He says, for the law having a shadow of good things to come. What were the good things to come that the author of Hebrews was speaking of that came after the law? Well, he's talking about the new covenant. He's talking about the cross. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the new life, the new creation. See, when we get saved, dads, we become new dads, totally new dads. We're totally changed. I mean, I know a lot of guys, who, myself included, who were pretty sorry fathers, and, and then we got saved, and God changed us, and we became pretty good fathers. Certainly we make mistakes. All of us make mistakes. But it's that change that Christ makes in us that those things to come, that were to come, that he's speaking of here, that, that make us better people. And not the very image of the things, because that's the law. The law was never the real image of the true thing. It can, the law can never, with these same sacrifices, he goes on, which they offer continually year by year. Now, you can tell by the tenses of this that the temple was still standing when this was written, and they were still making the sacrifices. And so he says, these sacrifices, which they make continually year by year on the Day of Atonement, and daily they were making sacrifices, not just year by year. They were making sacrifices every day. They could never make those who approach the, the temple perfect. They could never make you perfect. And here's the problem. In order to enter the presence of God, in order to enter his holiest of holies, you've got to be perfect, absolutely perfect. You can't enter 
the holiest of holies. You can't go into the presence of God unless you are absolutely perfect. You're not going to make it. Good people aren't going to make it to heaven. Perfect people are going to make it to heaven. And who makes us perfect? All our sacrifices and the sacrificial system, all of these offerings that were made year to year, they can't make you perfect. Your commitments can't make you perfect. The only thing that can make you perfect is what? The blood of Jesus Christ, the cross. We, we look to the cross for our perfection. So dads, if you want to be better dads, then you look to the cross. That's what makes you a better dad. I was touched at David's dad's funeral recently when David gave the part of the eulogy. And he talked about his dad. He said, if I might get this not exactly right, David, but I'll try to uh, paraphrase what you said. Uh, he said his dad was a pretty good dad. All of his life, most of his life, his dad was a pretty good dad. But then his dad got saved. And his dad became a great dad. Now, did he come, become a great dad because he made a commitment to become a great dad? No, he became a great dad because he got saved. He was a good dad, David said, but he became a great dad. I mean, my father's, I, my father's always been a Christian, so I was blessed from the very get-go with a great dad. And a, a dad who, who loves the Lord. And, 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 and you see that in a good father. You see Christ in them, their hope of glory. He goes on and he says in verses 2 and 3, he says, for, for then would they not have ceased to be offered? I mean, if they could make you perfect, if somehow the sacrificial system could make you perfect, at some point once it got made you better and better and better and made you perfect, what would it, it would end. It would, it, it would end over 2,000 years if you figure as many offerings as they made of of animals that it eventually would have made everybody perfect and there would have been no need for it anymore. But it didn't work. It didn't make anyone perfect. He says, for, for then there would not have been, for, for then would they have not ceased to be offered if it had made people perfect. For the worshipers once purified would no longer be sinners. They would not have a consciousness of sin. But in those sacrifices, the only thing that they got out of those sacrifices is a reminder of sin. See what he's saying there? He's saying if the sacrificial system had purified the people and changed them so that they were no longer sinners, but they were now saints, then, the, then it would have ended. I mean, but it, it didn't end because all the sacrificial system did was remind you that you're a sinner. Let me tell you what, if you're trying to be a better Christian through your own commitment, you know, all that's going to do is remind you that you're just still a sinner. Because you're, you're still going to fall and you're still going to fail. I mean, even as Christians, we fall and we fail. And, all, and that reminds us that we're, we're, we, we're sinners. And that we're, the only perfection that we have comes by the grace of God. So that's all those sacrifices did. That's, that principle is true for any sacrificial system. Any sacrificial system other than the cross, only the cross, only the blood of Christ can perfect you. There's no sacrifice but the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that can take away your sin. Any other sacrifice 
will only remind you of your sin. Well, pastor, that really doesn't apply to me because the sacrificial system no longer exists. Well, the sacrificial system that the Jews has no longer exists, but people have always been trying to make their own sacrificial system. I mean, one based on their own efforts or based upon their religious activity. You see, it's real subtle, and it can happen to any of us. I mean, Adam and Eve, they tried to structure a sacrificial system with fig leaves. Didn't work, did it? Uh, Cain, what did he, he tried to have a sacrificial system with his crops. That didn't work. Nadab and Abihu tried to establish their own system with false fire. It didn't work. In fact, it cost them their lives. Saul, remember, he got tired of waiting on Samuel, and so he made his own offer, altar and, and, and his own sacrificial system. That didn't work. And I, I, it's not just those guys. There's many so-called Christians who are rebuilding altars today. We're still trying to establish our own way to perfect ourselves instead of relying on Jesus Christ. Let me give you some examples. And, and I see this all the time, and I, you'll see it in mainstream denominations. The altar of confession. Somehow that if you confess your sins, your sins are taken away. That it's your confession that gets rid of your sins. And if you don't confess your sins, you're out of fellowship with God. Have you ever heard that? In other words, it, it, what that saying is, in order to have fellowship with God, what do I have to do? I have to confess my sins, and I have to confess all my sins. Well, let me tell you what, they take a pretty low view of sin when they come up with that doctrine, because, man, I don't know about you, but I can't confess all of my sins. Man, I have, I have sinful thoughts all the time, and I don't write them all down. I'd be busy all day writing them down. <laughs> I mean, I, have, I do sinful things. I do things that I shouldn't do. I mean, I, you do too. I mean, don't look at me like, man, pastor, I can't believe you do that. We all do sinful things. And we couldn't confess them all. I mean, we, that's, we'd spend all our time writing them down. If at the end of the day, in order to be fellowship, okay, Lord, I want to be a fellowship with you because I'm going to list all my sins. We don't do that. Confession doesn't make you any more holy. Wait, Pastor, you haven't read 1 John 1, 9, the Christian bar of soap. Have you ever heard that? That <laughs> makes me sick when I hear that. You want to wash yourself with the Christian bar of soap. Go with me to 1 John 1, 9. Just go a few books over towards Revelation. because I talk about this all the time. We better address it. Because this is an altar that's been set up. I'm, I'm talking about in mainstream denominations. I'm talking about mainstream Protestant denominations. They'll tell you if you don't confess all your sins, you're not in fellowship with God. And here's the verse that they base that upon. Now, I can take any verse and I can put that verse all alone and I can make it say just about anything I want to. And there's a danger there. And this is one of those dangers. This is not the Christian bar of soap. It says if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us of all our sins and to cleanse us from how much unrighteousness? All unrighteousness, if we confess our sins. So is it the confession that cleanses us? Well, let me tell you what verse 9 is. Verse 9 is a response to verse 8. You've got to take this into context. Verse 8 says, if we say that we're not sinners, that we have no sin, then we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But... If we confess our sins that we're sinners, then he is faithful and just to forgive us of all our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see what he's saying there? 
So, so in context, he's just answering verse 8. And he's not saying that your confession cleanses you of all sin. What cleanses you of all sin? Well, you've got to go back to verse number 7. Keep it in context. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, and you can only walk in the light if you admit that you're a sinner, that you need grace. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And what? The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from some of our unconfessed sin. All of our sin. If it cleanses me of all of my sins, if the blood of Christ, and I'm in fellowship with God, who's in fellowship with God? Anybody who's born again, who, anybody who's admitted that there's a sinner and they need a Savior, they're in fellowship with God. How much of my sin is cleansed? All of it. Is it cleansed by my confession? No. It's cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. So if I'm in fellowship with God because I've been saved, then all my sin's paid for. All my sin is cleansed by the blood. I'm always in fellowship with God. Even when I'm sinning, I'm in fellowship with God. Even when I'm not confessing my sin, I'm in fellowship with God. Do I believe in confession? Certainly. Confession is good for the soul. I mean, confession, that word confession is the Greek word homologos, which simply means the same word. It means you agree with the word of God. Now, I have the Holy Spirit in me, when, and I've used this example before. When I lose my temper in traffic, the Holy Spirit immediately says to me, George, that's wrong. And I don't say, well, you're wrong, Holy Spirit. <laughs> That's not healthy. <laughs> I say, I agree with you, Lord. I'll shut up if you want me to. <laughs> Just let me do this. say this one thing to this guy and I'll be done. <laughs> no, George. Okay. <laughs> so you see how we can build these altars? And what happens when you make your confession cleansing you of your sins, you're nullifying the work of the blood, and you're still in your sin. This is dangerous stuff. It's dangerous to make, build back these altars. There's, a, there's this altar we build called the sacrifice of prayer, the sacrifice of Bible reading. In other words, somehow if I read my Bible more or I pray more, I become more holy, more saved, more loved by God. Now, wait a minute. If the blood of Christ has cleansed me from all of my righteousness and I'm perfected in Christ, I'm as loved as I'm going to ever be loved. I'm as perfected as I'm ever going to be perfected. There are people who tell you, man, I pray once in the morning and I pray at night when I go to bed. Some even will go so far as I pray at noon. Wow, that's impressive. <laughs> You do that three times a day for 30 minutes each time? Man, you must be a super saint. Let me ask you a question. If I told Brenda that I'm going to, here's our deal. When we get, once we got married, this is what I, I'm going to, let's pretend I told her this. What I'm going to do is I'm going to talk to you for 30 minutes in the morning, and I'm going to talk to you for 30 minutes before I go to bed, and that's it, maybe at lunch sometimes. She'd throw me out of the house. <laughs> we live in a relationship. We have a loving relationship. I have conversations with my wife whenever it's necessary. And even when it's unnecessary, I have conversations with my wife. Or I'll die. And I don't want to die. So I can say anything. She's not in here. She's in children's ministry. No, we, I have a conversation with my wife because I love my wife. I read my Bible because I love the Lord. 
I don't read my Bible to become more spiritual or more holy or more loved by God. I read my Bible because I love the Lord. He's placed that love for his word in my heart. I talk to the Lord all the time. I don't, I don't, I'm in constant fellowship with the Lord. I mean, I mean, Paul says we to pray without ceasing. He didn't mean by that that you go up on a mountain and you hide yourself in a monastery and you pray, get on your knees and you pray the rest of your life. He doesn't mean that at all. What he means, you live in a relationship with the Lord, so you're constantly in fellowship with the Lord. You're constantly talking to the Lord. You don't, you've involved the Lord in every aspect of your life, every, every part of your day. And certainly there's times for special prayer in the morning and at night, but, but you know what? You see people that think they impress people with, the, with, their, with, with how much they pray or how long they pray. You know, I watch Elijah. I was listening to a message about Elijah last night. And, and there were the prophets of Baal. How long did they pray to their gods? All day long. They prayed and they prayed and they prayed. And they said all sorts of wonderful flowery prayers. And they prayed and they prayed and they prayed and they prayed. And they, and they cut themselves and they did all sorts of stuff. And you know what Elijah did? He said, you are Lord God Almighty, send down fire on this altar. And bam, it came down. That's all it took. But Elijah was a man who walked with God. He was in fellowship with God. And so his prayers, his prayer, I mean, the, James says, a prayer of a righteous man availeth much. I mean, Elijah prayed that it wouldn't rain and it, for three years, and it didn't rain for three years. I mean, he didn't get before the Lord for three days praying. He just said, Lord, I don't want it to rain for three years in Israel. These people need to learn a lesson. Boom, for three years it didn't rain. That's all he had to say because he lived in a relationship with God. You want power in your prayer. Man, your prayer life has got to be continued. You're always in a relationship with the Lord. And then when you get in trouble, you like Peter, you say, help, Lord. And he helps. He helps. That's all you got to do. I mean, Peter didn't go through some long, flowery, Lord, I'm drowning. You're the Jehovah God Almighty. You're the most wonderful being in the world. He would have drowned trying to do that. He said, Lord, help. And so we don't want to build the altar. I mean, we certainly want to pray, but it's not a sacrament. The altar of fasting. You know, somehow that if we give up things, that somehow we become more spiritual. You know, I believe we fast because we are more spiritual. I believe fasting is a reaction to, to, to our spiritual walk with the Lord. I mean, when, when, when you lose a loved one, you lose your appetite, don't you? I mean, when you're excited about something, you lose your appetite. When you're, when you're, when you're drawing close to the Lord and you're living close to the Lord, the things of the world sometimes kind of dissipate. Your appetites wane when you're really living close to the Lord. And so, yeah, fasting's a good thing. But you don't, you fast because, you fast because you are spiritual. You fast because you want to draw closer to the Lord. You don't fast because you think that makes you more holy. You don't fast because you think, well, God will love me more if I fast. You don't think God will forgive me more if I fast. No, you fast because you, you want to be close to the Lord. And you want the Lord to do something special in your life. Fasting's great, but we can flip it around and we can make an altar out of fasting. And then there's the, the altar of baptism. There, there are a lot of denominations that will tell you that if you don't get baptized, you're not saved. Well, when you say that, what are you doing? You're making, a, you're making an altar and a sacrifice out of baptism. 
that somehow baptism is part of your salvation experience. You don't get baptized to get saved. You get baptized because you are saved. And that's your, I believe baptism is your public confession of faith. And so you get baptized as, as, as your public confession of faith, as your, as your public profession of faith. And so, so, so the same thing's true with the Lord's Supper. You don't take the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper, when you take the Lord's Supper, it does not make you any holier or any more perfect in God's eyes. If you're a born-again believer, we're going to see in a few minutes, that you've been perfected forever. How much, what's perfect mean? It means perfect. Can you get better than perfect? No. So when we take the Lord's Supper, what are we doing? We're remembering what Christ did to make us perfect. We're not taking the Lord's Supper to make us more perfect. We're taking the Lord's Supper because he has made us perfect. And then there's the altar of commitment. I, I, I talked about that earlier in the introduction, this idea that somehow we can defeat sin in our lives if we commit to be better. Man, I, I see so many. I, I went, I went, when I was a young boy, I remember revivalists coming to town and hey, if you'll just come forward and and commit to being a better person then if you'll commit to giving up this drinking if you'll commit to giving up uh chasing girls whatever i was a little boy I was like man you know i need to go forward i need to go forward i need to go forward but that commitment doesn't do anything that commitment will not change you it will not make you it might make you better for a few weeks what I noticed was the people that came forward committing to be better, every time the revivalists came to town, they came forward again to commit to be better because they had fallen again because they were relying on their commitment. They were relying on their commitment and they weren't relying on Jesus Christ. And then there's even the altar of the altar call. Somehow that the altar call can make you holy or somehow if you'll just come forward and confess a sin here at this altar, somehow you'll, you, you'll have a better chance of getting it taken away. Or somehow that you get saved. You know, there are people that believe that you get saved by coming forward at an altar call. That's how you get saved. I've had people tell me, how'd you get saved? You ask them how they got saved. Oh, I went forward at such and such uh, crusade. Or I went forward at church one day. What are they saying when they say that? They're saying that by going forward, they got saved. I had a deacon one time when I was pastor at the church before this church that, that we don't have deacons like that. Here I'd fire them. I couldn't fire them there. But, <laughs> but gave me with this backhanded compliment. I mean, he said, he said, you know, you're a really good teacher. He said, but you got to learn to do a much better altar call. You've got to do a much more enthusiastic altar call. He says, he said, you know, what you want, you're, you're good at casting the net, but you've got to learn to draw the net in. And I said, well, I, I don't see it that way. Well, I, what, what, it seems to me what you're telling me to do is throw dynamite in the water and, catch, and blow it up and catch a bunch <laughs> of dead fish. Because, I mean, if my emotional plea gets you to come forward, you're not saved, you're just a dead fish. And he said, well, wait a minute. Now, it's the, it, there's the, people get saved by coming forward, and you're not getting them to come forward, so you're failing. I mean, he got really adamant about it. I said, do you understand what you're saying? You're making a sacrament out of the altar call. You're saying that somehow you get saved by coming forward. You don't get saved by coming forward. 
You get saved by receiving Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you're not saved, you want to come forward, come on right now. But you, not, you can get saved right there in your seat. All you've got to do is receive Jesus Christ into your heart. I, I give you that altar call every week. I mean, you need to receive Jesus if you don't know Jesus. But it, you coming forward is not what's going to save you. And, and, and that's real tricky because when I was a little boy, a revivalist came to town and he said, if you'll come forward, you'll get saved today. I said, wow, that's cool. And I was really shy and it took a lot of guts and so I went forward. Nothing happened. I was still as rotten as I ever was. I went to, I, I got to be 13 years old and the pastor got up and he preached a real, had a really good sermon. He preached a really had a really emotional altar call and they kept saying, come on, come on, come on. And they played them over and over again. And I could hear, I could hear either the devil or the Lord saying, go forward, go forward, go forward, go forward. And finally I went forward and I thought, well, I went forward. So I'm saved. Where was I putting my faith in going forward? And I was still as rotten as ever. I went to a Billy, when I was years later, I went to a Billy Graham crusade and that, and the same thing was said, if you'll come forward, if you'll come forward today, you'll be saved. So I went forward. I figured, man, it didn't happen at the church. Surely it'll happen at Billy Graham crusade. So I went forward, and I didn't get saved. But then I was out in my car in the desert, out in the middle of nowhere, and the Holy Spirit began to speak to me, and I went forward Amen. all by myself. And I gave my life to Jesus Christ, I receive the blood of Jesus Christ, the life of Jesus Christ, and I got saved. Because I understood then that it wasn't anything that I did that saved me. It's what Christ did that saved me, that saves me. So I'm not saying any of these things are bad. If you want to give an altar call, I'm, I know people have gotten saved because they received Christ and then they've come forward. That, that's great. There's nothing wrong with that. There's certainly nothing wrong with prayer. Confession's good for the soul. I mean, fasting's a great way to draw closer to God. And we're to pray without ceasing. And, and ceasing. And we should be Christians of all people, should be the most committed people in the world. So I, there's nothing wrong with commitment either. But we've got to make sure that we don't flip this around and turn these things into altars and turn these things into sacrifices. Because there's only one thing, the only one sacrifice that changes us, and that's the blood of Christ. And that's what he's going to talk about next. So go back to Hebrews. Well, we stayed a long time there. Back to Hebrews. We'll be out of here quickly. I'm not, uh, pretty quickly. And let's listen to what he says. He says, therefore, therefore, since it's impossible that the blood of bulls and goats, actually, I need to go back to verse 4, for it is impossible it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. It's impossible for our commitments to take away sins. It's impossible for our fasting to take away sins. It's impossible for our confession to take away sins. It's impossible for altar calls to take away our sin. It's impossible for our prayers to take away our sin. What takes away our sin? What cleanses us of all unrighteousness? The blood of Jesus Christ. And that's it. Therefore, since it's impossible for all those things to take away our sin, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrificing and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. He's quoting there from Psalm 40, that great messianic psalm. 
He says, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. What's he talking about? He's talking about the body that was woven together in the womb of Mary by the Holy Spirit. It was prepared for him for one purpose. One purpose, that body was prepared so he could die for your sin, so God could shed his blood for you. Can you add anything to the blood of God? No. In burnt offering and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Therefore, I said, behold, I have come. In the volume of the book, it is written of me. I love that right there. You understand what he's saying? People tell me, I, I remember a, a seminary professor telling me when I was in seminary that, that too many evangelicals look for Jesus under every rock in the Bible. Man, I look for him under every rock in the Bible because he is the rock of the Bible. Amen. And he is the Bible. The, the, this book was written about him. Amen. In the volume of the book, it is written of me. All of this is written about Jesus Christ. You can find Genesis, Jesus from Genesis to Revelation everywhere, all over the pages of the Bible. In the volume of the book, it is written to me to do your, and it's all about him doing the will of God. And what was the will of God? That he would give back that body, back that body that was prepared for him. The body was prepared for God to give back to God on the cross for my sin and for your sin. Now, here's the million-dollar question that I've got to ask at this point. If God had no pleasure in the sacrificial system, if he took no pleasure in the, the killing of thousands upon thousands, tens of thousands of animals, if he took no pleasure in that, then why did he make such a covenant in the first place? We talked about that before. Why did he do that? Two reasons. One, to cover our, the sins of the Old Testament saints until Jesus Christ died on the cross. The other reason was to prepare us for the new covenant so that we would see the futility of sacrificial systems, that we would see the futility of trying to make ourselves better. We would see the futility that, that, that nothing can make us better but the life of God, but the blood of Christ is the only thing that can cleanse us. We had to learn that lesson. That's why he had the sacrificial system. Then in verse 8, he says, previously saying, sacrificing and offering burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law, according to the old covenant. Then he said, Behold, Jesus speaking, I have come to do your will, O God. I've come to give back this body that you prepared for me. That's his will. To die on a cross for the sins of mankind. And in doing so, watch this. Get this down. Once and for all, get this down. He takes away the first, the old covenant, that he may establish the second. You get that? He takes away the first. The old covenant is taken away. People tell you, there are evangelical preachers, I listen to them for a minute, and they get up and they've got these pictures of the Ten Commandments on their wall and they say you're under law, you're still under law. You're not under law. He's done away with the old covenant. And if you have not done away, let me tell you, here's the danger. If you have not done away with the old covenant, you're still under the old covenant. You don't get both. You're either under the old or you're under the new. If you're not under the grace of God and you're under law, you're under law. 
And you better keep the whole law because if you, you keep the whole law and fell in one point, James says, you have committed sin against the whole law. You failed in keeping the whole law and you're doomed to hell. So you better get this straight. You gotta get, put away the first so you may establish the second. See, that's exactly what Jesus said over in Matthew chapter 9, verse 7. He said, you can't put new wine in the old wine skins unless the old wine skins burst and everything is destroyed. That's what's going to happen if you try to mix the two. And Paul put it like this in Galatians 2. He says, if you try to justify yourself through law, you nullify the work of Jesus Christ in your life. You totally, you're back under law. Now, here were these Jews, and they were struggling with this because the temple was still standing and the sacrificial system was still taking place. And they had been doing this all their life, so you can understand where the problem was. But he's trying to get them to break away from this totally. And they never broke away totally. And what, what did God have to do? No wonder he had to destroy the temple. He had to destroy the sacrificial system. And it was destroyed in 70 A.D. And when did it come back? When did God allow it to come back? Never. He won't allow it to come back. This is why I believe in the rapture. Because when the temple's rebuilt, you guys can't get messed up all that stuff because you're going to be out of here. And then he's going to be dealing with the Jewish nation. And they're going to be under law. That nation will be under law. And under law, there will be a sacrificial system. And there will be a temple. But there will never be a sacrificial system for you and me again. The sacrificial system is the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Because look at verse number 10. I, this is, y'all heard me quote this on many of occasions. It's one of those refrigerator magnet verses. I know I got a lot of them on my refrigerator, but, but this is one you got to get down. By that will, by the will that Jesus would die on the cross, by offering up that body that he was prepared for him, we have been sanctified. Let me tell you where the way that Greek word is translated throughout the New Testament. It's translated holy. It's translated perfect. It's translated saint. And it's translated sanctified. You'll see it four different ways in your Bible. Hagios. You have been sanctified. You've been made a saint. You've been perfected forever. You've been made holy. All through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. Look at that. He's repeating himself again. Look at what he says. Once and for all. Once and for all people and once for all. And for all time, you've been made holy, you've been made perfect, you've been made a saint, you've been made sanctified by the offering of Jesus Christ once and for all time. Going back to chapter 4, you remember the warning, chapter 3 and chapter 4, the warning he gave about not entering the rest of Jesus Christ? That's the warning. Not 
realizing that once and for all, that he's done all he's ever going to do for you. He's made you perfect in his eyes. He's made you a saint in his eyes. He's made you holy in his eyes. He's made you sanctified in his eyes. And if you add anything to that, you're not resting in the Lord and you're going you're to live in a spiritual wilderness and you're going to be tossed to and fro and you're never going to enter the promised land. And what happened to the Israelites? All but two of them? They died in that wilderness because they refused to rest in God and believe God. And we can do the same thing spiritually if we don't truly rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't want to steal the thunder of next week's lesson, but he rephrases that same verse in verse number 14. Jump ahead there for just a second as we conclude here. He says, for by one offering. How many offerings? One. One. If my commitment add to that? Does my taking the Lord's Supper add to that? Does getting baptized add to that? Does going forward add to that? Does anything I do or anything that's done in religion add to that? No. By one offering, he has perfected for how long? Forever. Those who are being sanctified. Those who are being made holy. You've been made holy, but you're being made holy. I mean, that's, that's, that's kind of a paradox, but all of us know we're not there yet. But whose work is it to get us there? It's the work of Jesus Christ. It's his work. Well, I want to be one of those who are sanctified. Don't, how many of you want to be one of those who are being sanctified? Which means you are sanctified. If you're being sanctified, you're, in God's eyes, you're already there. How do I get there? Well, Jesus told Nicodemus, didn't he? He says, as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whosoever believeth on Him, whosoever looks up at that pole, at that cross, and believeth on Him shall one day have everlasting life, shall have at that moment perfected forever, sanctified forever, made holy forever, made a saint forever. I look at that cross and the deal's done once and for all time. Why would you ever want to build another altar, another sacrificial altar, when all you need for perfection, you'll find by looking squarely at that cross. Dads, you want to be better dads this year? Look at that cross. Let me go ahead and give you mothers the Mother's Day sermon for next year. <laughs> mothers, you want to be good mothers? You look squarely at that cross. And you keep your eyes on that cross. You Christians want to be better Christians? You look squarely at that cross. And he will perfect you. He who begin a good work in you will complete it to the end. Everything I need 
for perfection is in the life of Jesus Christ. And where's the life? In the blood. In the blood. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for that blood. We thank you for that body that was prepared for you so that it could be given back to you on the cross for us. You did that for us. You gave your only begotten son for us. Lord, in the book of Hebrews helps us to understand the travesty, Lord. The pride of adding anything to that great sacrifice that Jesus made for us on the cross. It's by his blood, Lord, and his life that we're made forever perfect. What a great truth. What a great blessing. Lord, help us to grasp that deep down in our souls and hearts. I ask that in Christ's name. Amen.